coming up, Home Hazmat 101. Countermeasures for the top 10 ways people commonly blow themselves up. And then they wake up cranky, of course, in the Burns unit, having a suboptimal day. You don't have to join this club, you know, especially now with the hospitals awash in absenteeism and, of course, dripping with COVID. I'm going to show you how in this video. That's next. And right at the end of this report, I'm also going to explain how you can avoid unwittingly poisoning yourself with exactly the same chemical used to kill 85,000 people during World War One. So that'll be fun. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously, or you can simply click the card that's more or less, you know, up there now dude. Except, of course, if it's not. Now, the poisoning yourself thing. So easy to do. Even easier to avoid if you know how, but you have to know how. Dichlorocarbon monoxide. Like, rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It's just got to be evil shit. It sounds bad and, yeah, it is bad. Thousands of people have the precursor chemical in pressure packs in their very own fat caves today, and they just don't know. And I'm not fear-mongering. I'm trying, potentially, to save your life. This video is sponsored by Olight, great supporter of this channel, and I carry an Olight Warrior Mini 2 every day. It's awesome. Olight's January VIP pre-sale kicks off tonight at 8pm. Big discounts, link in the description, plus a code for 12% off outside the sale. More on that a little later. Now, before we prevent homegrown hazmat mayhem, I'd like to thank you sincerely for your kind words, your support, and your, frankly, totally humbling responses to yesterday's video on COVID-19 Omicron and how our dipshit leaders have betrayed our trust in them using a special blend of export-grade bullshit and incompetence. Link up there for that report if you haven't caught up with it yet. Just wanted to say thanks sincerely for that. In my view, our useless leaders need to know that we demand more of them to make Australia less shit. For our kids and, of course, for us too. And I realise that it's just a pragmatic aspiration at this point to make the joint less shit. But it could be a new political party. Just saying. The reason I decided to do this story today is I got to cut this big fuck-off piece of channel. I got to cut 700 millimetres off it to finish my fabrication surface, okay? And that's a big job because this is... 250 wide, the flanges are 15 thick, the web's 8mm thick, that's a lot of steel to get through and I definitely don't want to use a 4 inch or 5 inch angle grinder to do that. I want to use the big bandsaw because it's designed to do that, but even then it's going to generate a lot of heat, okay, and I've got to deal with that. And the deal with that is something like this, which is just basic cutting fluid concentrate. You mix it up with water, you get 20 litres of cutting fluid. Right? And everyone should read the destructions on something like this, but 
I wonder how many people do. I, if you do, you see in two places on the back here, it says always add the water first, like 20 litres of water, and then add the concentrate. Do not do it the other way around. And that is so important. And not just with this stuff, right? But with plenty of other chemicals as well, such as Drano. You know the white flakes, that sodium hydroxide stuff that you stick down a clogged drain and it gets into the grease and it basically turns it into soap and it washes away? Well, it's a little bit dangerous like this stuff and calcium hypochlorate, the stuff that you put in your pool after you dissolve it in a bucket of water, right? That stops the algae growing. It's like that as well. And these and other chemicals all have the following thing in common, which is that they liberate a shitload of heat when you dissolve them. They're exothermic, okay? And you've really got to manage that. It's so easy to blow yourself up if you get the order of operations wrong. So you've got to put the water in the bucket first before adding the chemical. If you went to university and studied science, you did a basic chemistry thing, they'd go on and on about that. You know, every time you're diluting acid, it's always water first, acid second. Same thing. Okay, I actually knew a bloke who blew himself up with calcium hypochlorate. He was the program director of Radio 2UE while I was working there and he just didn't come to work one day because the previous day on the weekend, he got the order of operations wrong and he put the chlorine in the bucket first and then he added water. And the next thing he knew, he woke up in a freaking ambulance. His garage was full of fireys and it was the proper hazmat incident. <laughs> right? And he spent several days in hospital as a consequence. He recovered, but that was just luck. So water's got this thing. It's got this incredible capacity to act as a thermal shock absorber. It absorbs 4.18 kilojoules for every kilogram for every degree C of temperature rise. So if you've got five litres of water in a bucket, okay, and the bucket, it's at 20 degrees C, it's therefore got about 80 degrees C worth of temperature movement before it boils, and that means it can absorb something like 1.7 million joules of energy before it boils. And that's what we're talking about here. If you put the chemical in first and then add the water, you're at risk of having all this chemical gagging to dissolve, gagging to liberate a lot of heat and only a tiny amount of water engaged with the chemical as you pour it in. It can quickly boil and blow it back in your face, which is exactly what happened to the dude from Radio 2UE. Now, I'm giving you the context here so that you can remember why. Because if you know the why, you never get the order wrong. Water's the shock absorber. Take the shock out of the system first, then put the chemical in. And just to put that in context, okay, when you get up a ladder in here and you climb 4.2 metres to the ceiling, that's enough to kill you if you fall, just, right? Six metres up, certainly enough to kill you. 4.2 metres, probably not going to be that healthy on the ground, okay? But let's say it's enough to kill you. You've only got 3.3 kilojoules of energy at the top of the ladder, Five litres of water's got the capacity to absorb 1.7 million joules, not 3.3 thousand. Like, it's incredible stuff. I know we drink it, but every time you're mixing something up, just say to yourself, thermal shock absorber first, and you'll always remember how to take this terrible risk off 
the freaking table. Countermeasure number two, the easiest way to blow yourself up refueling is simply by using static electricity, most common cause of filling station fires. See, when you open the fuel filler, you earth yourself to your car and then you grab the pump handle, thereby earthing yourself to the pump. So when you do that, you and the pump in the car, you're all at the same electrical potential. <laughs> so no sparking it up whatsoever is possible. However, if anyone jumps out of the car after that, Tiffany, perhaps in her nylon fishnets and woolen secretary's costume, I do like that one, and then she walks up and places her hands suggestively upon the car on its flanks and asks to see your uh, nozzle. She could easily discharge a static spark in that situation. And that could be it for F-U-N for the rest of the week, at least. This is also, of course, why kids should stay in the car during refueling. Phones, right? They're not so intrinsically dangerous during refueling. Like, there's never been a case of a fire at a fuel station caused by a cellular telephone. But it is a really, 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 really good idea to pay attention to refueling when you are actually engaged in this process, no matter how innocuous it seems, given the inherent potential for mayhem that underpins the whole thing. So I'd suggest that that vital tweet can actually wait, dude. Also, portable fuel containers, right? Jerry cans and the smaller ones for the yard equipment, they have to come out of the vehicle for refilling. Take them out of yo car and out of the tray of yo ute, whatever, and put them on the ground right next to the pump. This process earths them and therefore stops you from discharging a static spark into them when you introduce the nozzle. Trust me on this, you don't want to do that. It's also not a bad idea to get a visual lock on the emergency shutoff switches and the fire extinguishers, which are hidden in plain sight at every filling station, you know, just in case. Countermeasure number three now, one for the Dingo Piss Creek Visitation Fraternity. Remote refueling, such fun. Always open jerry cans slowly because if the day has heated up, they're going to be under pressure and it's not air escaping, right? It's highly flammable vapour. Have a fire extinguisher and a fire blanket ready, standing by. And of course, in case you've been spending the past couple of decades dead from the neck up, don't smoke. If you have a fire in the middle of the great Australian fuck all, the gaffer, <laughs> let's say, miraculously, you get off scot-free and you are unhurt. Let's say it only burns your vehicle to the ground. In that event, you've just lost your mobility, your comms, your shelter, your water, and your first aid. You're standing in the middle of the desert and it's 45 degrees C and there's no shade for like 100 Ks and you're already thirsty so good luck with that. You'd really want to have that fire extinguisher on standby for remote refueling. 
It's not overkill. I'm not being a nanny. It's also a good idea to have a go bag of emergency supplies in the vehicle. Sat phone, water, shelter, first aid, right? It's all just sitting there, deployable, with absolute first order accessibility. Like, open the door, it's there. Gotta be like that. You need to be able to grab that bag and go under extreme pressure, okay? Diesel is, of course, much safer than petrol in these situations, but take the same precautions anyway. And you don't need to refuel remotely quite as often in a diesel in any case. Another critical thing to remember about jerry cans, and it doesn't matter if they're plastic or metal, as long as they're designed specifically to hold liquid fuel, that's kind of important. Now, don't overfill them. You can see just here, the words nominal capacity 20 litres and there's a line just here. That's the full mark. That means liquid level not to exceed this mark. And obviously you can tweak it if you want. You can tip it back like this and you can essentially fill it up until there's a friggin' meniscus right on top of the filling point. But if you do that, you haven't got anywhere to go if the pressure increases inside the can because you fill it up at 25 degrees C and you take the lid off at 35 and fuel increases dramatically in volume or substantially enough in volume with temperature okay so what you need to engineer is a vapor space at the top to accommodate any increase in the volume of the liquid and then all you need to remember is that when you open the top open it gently and gradually and if you hear a bit of a hiss just stop there let the pressure relieve itself and then take the top off. Much safer. That's the main reason, incidentally, why I like these plastic tanks. It's because you can undo them more gradually than that cam overlock kind of system that's in the metal jerry cans. The other thing to remember, of course, is if it's at all possible, minimize how much fuel you need to carry try and carry it outside the vehicle, like in an external holder, so that if there is some leakage, the vapor can escape harmlessly and not build up. Because the last thing you need is to fill a camper trailer or a caravan or something with highly flammable petrol vapor, open the door, turn on the light, whooshka. That would be an unmitigated frigging disaster. VIP access to the Olight January sale kicks off tonight at 8pm, that would be Thursday the 13th of January, and they're not letting everyone else in until the 17th, so that's a bit of a leg up. Now, I just checked, the Mighty Swivel, I love this thing, is back in stock. Everyone needs a swivel, and this one can be had currently in two colours, this green and black. Such a good work light for the fat cave and the field, right? Because it's not just a work light like this, it's also a flashlight like that. That's pretty clever in and of itself, I think you'd agree, but it's magnetic. So you can stick it to virtually anything made of steel, and it's got this clip here, which adds to the versatility, and of course, it swivels, as the name implies. And dude, it's not gonna mind if a younger swivel with you know, better features comes along in a couple of years and you decide to upgrade to that. If only it could cook and clean. On sale this month, the Seeker 3 Pro in 
blue. I do like this thing also. It's not so much a tactical torch because no tail switch, right? But awesome around the campsite. Good beam spread and it's waterproof. It's got a peak output, I'll just crank it up here, of 4,200 lumens, which is flat out amazing. And a proximity sensor that turns it down for self-protection if the lens gets too close to anything at five different levels, right down to just five lumens, which is pretty good for maintaining your night vision. And at 300 lumens, which is, I think, level three or thereabouts in the range, just fine for walking around and generally doing stuff in the dark or finding the washer that you just dropped onto your fat cave floor. And I don't know why they always fall and roll 16 feet in the most counterintuitive direction you can imagine, but that's how they roll, literally. Good for that. It's going to run for nearly 11 hours on that 300 lumen setting using the supplied rechargeable 5,000 milliamp hour battery. And it only weighs about 200 grams and it fits right in your hand like that. It's got a nice rubber grip. So pretty pocket friendly torch. It's IPX8 waterproof and it's magnetic on the tail, which is how you recharge it also. You can even lock the rotary switch to prevent accidental activation, plus it's going to give you brightness and battery display in real time around the edge of the switch, and you can change the brightness just by spinning the dial with your thumb. So it's an excellent high quality general purpose torch. Now this is a first for me, okay? This is my very first O-Knife. It's called the Parrot, and it's got a 154 chrome molly blade in that sort of modified sheep's foot genre so you get high wear and corrosion resistance and great edge retention 154 chrome molly of course a great material for a knife that's going to be subjected to the slings and arrows of actual real world knife use and when you fold it like it's only palm sized easy to carry, but not too tiny to actually hold and manipulate. The micarta handle is on the black one, and this one, the blue one, gets a G10 handle. A bit of subtle sort of jimping here, I think they call it, on the uh, back of the blade for thumb stability, plus there's a small but functional choil at the root of the blade, right? So you can actually hold it quite positively like that, and these features on the blade actually increase the amount of the knife available for you to hold in that stable way. Now, it's got full left and right stainless liners, so it's a very solid feeling knife, and there's a liner lock built in as well, plus the tip-up pocket clip. And by tip-up, I mean when it's folded. The tip is up in the direction of the pocket clip. So what that means is it comes out of your pocket ready to rock and roll. You don't have to flip it. And look, the blade is only 66 millimeters long, right? So it's long enough to be useful without looking like Johnny Rambo's Bowie knife, and it's pretty light. It weighs only just a frag over 100 grams. So I guess if you are walking home quietly one evening and you get set upon without warning by a cardboard box from Amazon and three of those reinforced padded envelopes or something, you can channel your inner Alice from Resident Evil, not freaking Wonderland, and you can make like Saul Hudson until that malevolent packaging is little more than confetti lying at your feet. You might have to look up Saul Hudson, but it's appropriate. Link in the description plus a code for 12% off after the sale, because I love you, obviously, but platonically, I harbour no desire to take things, you know, to the next level. Very common.
common to see a propane cylinder like this in transit on the road to Dingo Piss Creek. <laughs> you know, in the back of utes, that's very popular, on roof racks, bolted to the A-frame and the drawbar of a camper trailer, something like that, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing particularly dangerous about a propane cylinder. But it's a good idea to make sure they can't fall over, particularly if they leak. See, there's nothing intrinsically dangerous about sitting a propane cylinder on the bench like this. Doesn't really change the internal pressure or the dynamics or anything of that nature. So that's not dangerous. But the thing you want to remember is if the valve is leaking because something has hit it and opened it and it falls over, right? Or if it's in use powering an appliance like a barbecue and it falls over, then you're not going to be ejecting gas anymore. You're going to be ejecting liquid because what's happening inside the cylinder is at some level, depending on how full the bottle is, you've got liquid propane down here and gaseous propane on top. And when you open the valve and your barbecue is running, then the pressure drops because you're losing gas out of the top because there's no tube down to the bottom from this valve. It just takes gas off the top of the cylinder under pressure, right? When that happens, the pressure drops, the fluid boil, like the liquid boils, and more gas is re-established into the space above. That's just how this rolls. It boils. It's exactly like water boiling in a saucepan. It's the same process. It just happens at a lower temperature, okay? And if the cylinder falls over while the valve is open, much different because what's coming out of the cylinder then is liquid propane and that's kind of bad because it will rapidly evaporate into a gas there'll be a large volume of gas because one atmosphere it can't exist as a liquid it has to rapidly transition to a gas so it turns into a big ball of gas and right on the boundary of that ball there's a thing called the flammability range there'll be a concentration of air in contact with a concentration of propane and if the proportions are just right or just wrong, then if there's a source of ignition, kaboom, you get a big fat ball of Hollywood style bayhem. Only you didn't want that and there might be a lot of dry grass around and things of that nature. So it's very important to make sure the gas bottles don't fall over, particularly in transit. And they do what they can to protect the knob on the valve by enclosing it and protecting it from accidental knocks in this way. But anything kooky can happen in transit. So my strong advice would be to strap a bottle down, preferably outside of a camper trailer or a vehicle. And if you don't know how to do that, buy a bespoke clamp that's been specially made to hold the cylinder that you've got. And if you're wondering about how to attach that, it's probably got fasteners attached, but I'd suggest that an M10 coarse grade 8.8, I always call them grade 8.8, .8. it's a class 8.8 .8 high tensile bolt. If you use three or four of them to hold one of these in place, like to affix a clamp to something structural in a trailer, whatever, and tighten it up to 40 newton metres, something like that for an M10, then each one of those bolts is going to have intrinsic sort of clamping force of about two tonnes. So if there's three of them, you've got six tonnes worth of restraint subject to 
the site that they're attached to being able to cope with that much load, all right? So as long as you do it professionally and you use big enough fasteners and M10 is fine, then the bottle can't fall over and this problem just magically goes away. Countermeasure number six, okay, if you're doing repair work on any of that yard equipment like internal combustion engine yard equipment, I'm talking about mowers and brush cutters and chainsaws and shredders and things of that nature, don't forget that they've got more than enough fuel on board to kill you. You should look at them and go, you're trying to kill me and I'm going to stop you. And I had to do that just the other day, right, because I've got this ageing shredder and its function is to get pruned branches and turn it into mulch, right? It's got a five-horsepower Briggs & Stratton engine, so it's not a monumental machine, but it's powerful enough for work around the house, you know? And it's only 30 years old, so they must have done something right in R&D. So anyway, the chute that you feed the stuff down into the blaze via, which is also the handle to wheel it around, has developed these fatigue cracks and in the manner of fatigue cracks, they grow and grow and grow. And finally, you've got to do something about it, lest the whole thing friggin' collapse before your eyes when you're moving it. So I do that and I could have kind of welded it in place in situ, but I had a look at it and it's a bit close to the fuel tank and the easiest way to manage risks of that nature, and the principal risk being grinding sparks or, you know, BBs from welding, just going a little bit close to the fuel tank. So you could manage that. You could put a fire blanket or a welding blanket or even a leather welding apron or something if you've got a second one. You could put that over the fuel tank and mitigate the risk like that. But the safest way to do this, okay, is just to eliminate the hazard by unbolting the part and working on it separately, which is exactly what I did. And hey, still here, okay? So if you've got to do any of that fabrication stuff on any yard equipment or things of that nature, I'll talk about doing the same sort of thing on cars in just a minute, but make sure that in, in the front of your mind, the criminal intent of these machines is they want to kill you and you've got to stop them. It's not negotiable. In exactly the same way that yard machinery can literally blow up in your face, your car would be so happy to oblige. Now, you might be at risk here if you're one of the restoring cars fraternity, right? But so might your kid if he's just young and dumb and playing around on his first or second shitbox car or something. Cutting out a chunk of rusty floor pan and welding in a patch that's such a classic way to burn the entire house to the ground. Even just fitting a big subwoofer somewhere, right? Drilling through the floor straight into the fuel tank. Nice one, dude. See, cars have everything a pyromaniac has ever dreamed of. They've got fuel and electricity and they've got it everywhere and they're essentially built of highly flammable shit wrapped into a steel enclosure. Thus, they have all the magic ingredients for getting yourself on the news. Just have a look beneath the car to establish the terrain from below before you cut into anything. Like, just identify the topography from the other side before you do anything. And then drilling, grinding and cutting, just avoid it if it involves proximity to the fuel tank. And if you don't know how to deal with that, then don't do it, you know. Also make sure you stay away from fuel lines and electrical wires with your cutting disc and your welder. Brake lines are another excellent thing not to damage by accident. 
And I get that it is fun to make sparks fly. It makes the whole thing seem worthwhile, doesn't it? But it is a whole lot less dangerous cutting sheet metal in a car if you just use a nibbler such as that. I'll put a link in the description, okay? They just attach to a cordless drill. They don't make star starks or sparks. <laughs> and they cut up to 14 gauge sheet metal, which is like two millimeters, I think. And they're pretty cheap, right? Reciprocating saws and jigsaws also do a pretty good job as well. Just make sure that you fit a fine tooth bimetal cutting blade designed for sheet metal. Like fine teeth and the bimetal thing should get you across the line. Just don't run the saw flat out and cut fairly gently. And if you suddenly encounter significantly increased resistance, stop and have another look from below. Don't just press on. Also a damn fine idea to get a welding blanket, something like that, typically made of fiberglass, link in the description, just to stop the interior from catching on fire if you are grinding and making sparks or certainly for when you start to weld any patches in place from rusty stuff that you have just vivisected from the car's exoskeleton. And if you are using a grinder to clean up edges, to prep for welding or something, Use a wire wheel as opposed to an abrasive disc, right? Like fewer sparks, less sort of aggressive treatment. The same precautions apply to any fab work that you do in the engine bay, obviously. Welding blanket in that situation, definitely not optional. Countermeasure number eight, never degrease with petrol. Petrol is actually an awesome degreaser, I get that. It's just so damn dangerous to sit there with your face stuck in a cloud of highly flammable petrol vapor evaporating from a plastic container full of some shitty parts. Petrol is also dangerous to breathe and or to get on your skin, so don't do that. Use a proper degreaser, carefully designed not to burst into flame at the mere suggestion of a friggin' spark. A half a litre of petrol is more than adequate to kill you if your face is above it and any fiery mayhem kicks off. In that event, it's been nice knowing you, dude. If you've got a fat cave, it doesn't matter how big or small, just do me a favour, okay? Get the most out-of-the-way corner of your fat cave and put all of the hazmat shit there, okay? On a shelf, doesn't matter how, where, but... Just get it away from the main workshop operations where you do your grinding, your cutting, your welding, things of that nature. This systematic separation would be managed for you in industry. Like someone would do a risk assessment and they'd say, that shit's got to go away. But you're kind of responsible for that in your own domain, right? So this means paints, fuels, aerosol products, LPG bottles, jerry cans, containers with two-stroke in them, whatever, just get that away from where you're going to be making sparks and noise, right? And then this systematic separation greatly reduces the risk of you seeing yourself on the news from a frigging hospital bed. The final point to be made here, and I discussed this in a recent video, is one of the key countermeasures for every fat cave, and it's kind of not negotiable, is that stuff. You need a fire extinguisher and a fire blanket. I've got a nine kilo ABE powder fire extinguisher, which to my reading of the different kinds is 
the most appropriate kind for the widest possible range of conceivable fat cave fires. And you should probably have one in your fat cave as well. And disgracefully, I have to confess to you that it was kind of negotiable for me until recently, but I finally bit the bullet and did it, and I'm very glad I have, and I just hope I never have to use them. But it's nice to know they're there. So if you really do want to take the management of these kinds of risks seriously, if something does go not according to plan, it's always nice to be able to come up with plan B and maybe get things back under control. And now, here's that risk about gassing yourself that I talked about earlier. Now, finally, the deadly danger hidden in brake cleaner. It's hidden in some brake cleaner anyway. There's two kinds of brake cleaner broadly, and the one you must avoid is the chlorinated kind. These contain chemicals called organochlorides, chloroethylenes basically. If you need brake cleaner at all, you must get one that has on the label chlorine-free. Like It's still going to be properly awful stuff, containing toluene and things of that nature. It's just going to be less awful than the chlorinated kind. The chlorinated ones, right, in them, the main culprit is a thing called tetrachloroethylene, mainly, which the Americans call perchloroethylene or just perk. These organochlorides are actually kick-ass cleaners and degreasers, which is why they're there, but they're just generally really bad for you. Contact with your skin or breathing the vapours, don't do that. You're doing that and it's taking your DNA to Gitmo and forcibly demanding Osama bin Laden's home address, essentially. But it gets even more entertaining than that, potentially. So that's nice. In your fat cave, the big danger with this chlorinated shit is if you use it for welding prep. See, a lot of welding processes, mainly GMAR and GTOR, which is gas metal arc welding and gas tungsten arc welding, more commonly called MIG and TIG, in those processes, cleanliness is kind of next to godliness if you want a good welding result, especially with TIG. And that generally means degreasing before you weld, right? Especially if you've done a bunch of drilling and cutting ops with cutting lube on the metal that you've been fabbing up. You see, chlorinated brake cleaner leaves an organochloride residue on the parts if you use them for that. And this is like every different flavour of bad. Wrapped up into the one job because... Once that stuff hits a critical temperature, which I think is only about 300 degrees C, it decomposes into phosgene gas, which is essentially chlorinated carbon monoxide. This especially evil compound is actually listed on Schedule 3 of the Chemical Weapons Convention, but it also has industrial uses, such as making polyurethane and polycarbonate, I think. Things of that nature, anyway. And 300 degrees is so easily exceeded in every welding process. So there's you trying to have a good time sitting with your head in a cloud of smoke and phosgene. Well done. Two fairly insidious things about that, okay? Number one, phosgene is not as dangerous as something like sarin, obviously, but you can't sort of accidentally make sarin, thank fuck. 
However, phosgene is still very, very dangerous in concentrations lower than you can smell it. So you won't actually know if you are poisoning yourself with that crap. By all accounts, it actually smells pretty nice, like cut grass or something. Go figure. Point number two, you don't develop symptoms typically until much later after exposure. And by the time you actually have those symptoms, it's essentially too late to treat you. The treatment then is essentially they put you in a room in a hospital and see if you croak. So that's the mother load of shit sandwiches right there, I'd suggest. And you were just hoping to have fun doing a bit of welding on your shitbox restoration project. So my strong advice to you is that if you have any chlorinated brake cleaner in the shop at all, check now and dispose of it responsibly this week at the very latest at a proper chemical disposal facility. Do not just dump it in the garbage, dude. Be responsible. And only ever use methylated spirits or isopropyl alcohol or acetone when you degrease to prep for any welding. Any welding, any time. So much safer, right? No residue and certainly no lurking phosgene precursors, right? Do I have to draw a diagram? Just remember to put these safer chemicals away with the other sort of hazmat stuff before you spark up any of the really fun fabrication toys. Maybe you could weld in the open air to manage the fumes or run a fan to blow them away from you. And I know that's no good for MIG or TIG, right? It just blows the shielding gas away. But it is viable for MMA and FCAW, stick welding and flux-coated MIG, essentially. For gas-shielded processes, you need to run a suction-type fume extractor. Okay? And in any case, lift your head up and get it out of the fumes. You haven't got to have your visor three inches from the welding job. You just don't. Let me know if you want me to show you how to set up the fume extraction, okay? I'm happy to do that in a DIY segment if there's any interest on things of that nature. Now, this phosgene thing is a serious risk that a lot of backyard DIY warriors simply do not know about. But thankfully now, you are not among them. 